This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. For years, Germany has been portrayed, especially by sections of the British press, as an economic hawk with a Machiavellian cunning to shape the European Union to its service. The cheerleader of an evil globalist new order that we want nothing to do with. The Vogue has now shifted to a narrative of Germany as an essential but mewling and dithering partner who delays the West's inevitable march to victory over Putin. After months of negotiations, Germany has approved the re-exporting of its Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine and has committed to send a number of its own. The West's media seems to have responded with, finally, instead of hooray. My guest today is the New Statesman's writer-at-large, based in Berlin. Formerly, he was the New Statesman's international editor, and before that, the Economist's Brussels bureau chief after a stint at the European Commission. He is also one of 10 people driven mad by Brexit, according to Guido Fawkes, and so A-OK in my book. Welcome to the bunker, Jeremy Cliff. Uh, Thank you very much for having me, Alex. And yes, I have to plead guilty that I was driven mad by Brexit. <laughs> Jeremy, you called the decision by Germany on Leopard 2 tanks last week an excellent outcome, but one not reached at a pace matching that of the events on the ground in Ukraine. Has the delay done lasting damage, do you think? I think it has. One shouldn't overstate it, but let's bear in mind that Ukraine first requested tanks from its Western partners as long ago as a week into Russia's full-scale invasion back in February last year. So it's been on the agenda for a long time. Ukraine increased its request. It expressed this more urgently and in public and expressed its disappointment, particularly at Germany, for not meeting it um, as long ago as September. And so it is regrettable, I think, that it took until mid-January for this to come together. Obviously, the more support that can be provided to Ukraine on the ground, the better, the stronger a position it puts the Ukrainian armed forces, and the more likely Ukraine can prevail in good time. And I do think time is of the essence here. So I I think it's good that the West is providing these tanks. The the military case, I'm no military expert, but military experts tell me that the military case for these, these battle tanks is very strong. But I do think it's a shame this wasn't reached earlier. And I do think it, it speaks to a failure of leadership in Europe. And perhaps we can talk a bit more about that. Uh, yeah, afterwards. I, I think that's the, the sort of dominant school of thought at the moment. So let me play devil's advocate a little bit and say, on the other hand, Chancellor Schultz did manage to extract equivalent involvement by the US 
also sending mm. tanks, even though they won't arrive for months, in terms of symbolism, at least, um, Philip Alterman considers this a really important development. Does that not prove Schultz got it right, actually? I would, certainly wouldn't contradict my, my friend Philip on that. And I think there is obviously a symbolic advantage to have the US, the great superpower, as part of this uh, tanks coalition. Set against that, um, there was a reason why Ukraine specifically wanted the Leopard 2s, which are the tanks that um, Germany holds and over the control of the export of which it has final say but under under weapons licensing rules. Mm. Um, the reason Ukraine wanted Leopards was, first of all, there were about 2,000 of them in various European armies. So they're on this side of the Atlantic. They're also, I understand, rather more nimble than the than the Abrams tanks that the US will eventually send, which will also have advantages on the battlefield. So a better outcome would have been for Europe to move faster to send Ukraine more leopards. So while I wouldn't, I'm sure the Ukrainians will gratefully receive the Abrams that are on their way, I believe about 30, um, although not in the short term, a better outcome would have been Europe get its act together and lead here, you know, in supporting Ukraine, where on almost every other topic, the US is overwhelmingly led, at least on military terms. So I do think it was a missed opportunity. Would it be fair to say that considering Germany's decades-long policies on arms exports and defence spending, starting with Schultz's Zeitwende speech last February, it is the country that has actually travelled the furthest distance than any of the big Western allies. Yes and no. I think sometimes Germany is viewed from the English-speaking world as being overwhelmed by its own pacifism as a result of, of history that doesn't need repeating here. Um, and I think that's only partly true. I mean, we forget that both West and East Germany during the Cold War were highly militarised societies. You know, this was going to be the battleground of, of any conventional World War III. Mm. The West German army had uh, over 7,000 battle tanks at its peak in the 1980s. So that's mul multiples of the number of leopards in the whole of Europe today. Yes, um, yes. You know, the Federal Republic only abolished conscription and military service in 2011. And Germany is a major arms exporter. I, think, I believe it's the fifth, the fifth biggest arms exporter in the world and quite happy to send arms to unsavoury regimes like that in Egypt, for example. So this idea that Germany is completely allergic to all things military I don't entirely buy. However, I do think that Germany got used to the idea after the fall of the Berlin Wall that Europe was united and peaceful. The end of history had come. No, I think nowhere perhaps did Francis Fukuyama's famous saying meet a more willing audience than in Germany. Mm, mm, um, mm. And I think that you know, under previous chancellors, including Merkel, uh, Germany got rather used to the idea that its security would be provided by the US, its energy would come from Russia, and its trade orders would come from, from China. And so Germany has had to travel a distance in getting used to the idea that that formula no longer works. Um, and yeah. I think it's it's that broader perspective on on Europe and the world that has that, that has required the most adjusting. I do think Germany's moving in the right direction. I've written this before. I don't share the despair of some. Um, yeah. Even under Merkel, it edged towards taking more responsibility and recognizing these realities. But I mean, to, to return to the quote that you started with, I just don't think that the pace matches the speed at which realities in Europe are changing. Jeremy, is it is it not actually, looking at the bigger picture, quite healthy to have a key member of the alliance who is less hawkish, who does need convincing, who acts as a little bit of a break? You know, considering the factors that we've talked about and the fact actually that Germany has ended up as the key person 
that could give permission for these tanks to go. Is it legitimate to resent an ally for taking time to think, for not being bullied into a position that you want them to go to? No, I don't. And I do think that some of the concerns that I think motivated Schultz to take his time with this are entirely legitimate. I mean, he he was worried and is worried about escalation in the conflict. That is not a worry unique to Berlin. I know that it's a, it's a concern in Washington as well and, and in London and in other capitals. He's concerned about the risk of the conflict going nuclear. He's concerned about Russia increasing also its sabotage efforts against the West. I mean, Germany is very vulnerable now. There's concerns about its gas pipeline to Norway, which on which the country relies all the more now. And of course, there's the picture on the ground, you know, does sending more weapons to the Ukrainians increase the savagery of Russian attacks on Ukrainian citizens? So I do mm. think those are perfectly legitimate concerns. But the problem is, it's not like this has been the biggest topic in German politics for the last few months. I think for until relatively recently, it was rather pushed to the sidelines. So it's not like um, ever mm, since mm. Ukraine first requested the tanks, Germany's been conducting a sort of intensive ethical and geopolitical debate about this. It's that it took the country and took the country's leadership, including Scholz, too long to even start grappling with the pros and the cons and talking to allies and working out how this could be done or would be done and judging the risks based on that plan. So I think reflection is one thing, putting one's head in the sand is another. You mentioned there the sort of leadership that was expected and you mentioned you mentioned that even Merkel had started to move before. Do you think part of the sort of impatience of the West was a, a global expectation of someone as authoritative as Chancellor Merkel at her peak, um, ignoring the fact that Scholz actually is very new. Uh, he, you know, his party's flagging in the polls. He heads a, a, a new traffic light coalition. He just doesn't have the authority and the power that Merkel did. Um, should that have been more of a factor in, in, in the Allies' thinking? Perhaps. I mean, I think Merkel was looked to as a leader, I think some, sometimes unrealistically, partly just because of the paucity of alternatives, particularly during the Trump era in the US. Um, so even if she was moving Germany towards more responsibility, it was a slow and gradual process. I mean, her, her most famous saying on this was in 2017, shortly after Trump took office, she was speaking at a, a beer tent in Munich. And she said, the times in which we could entirely rely on others are somewhat over, which was, I thought, typically Merkelian, because it was both recognising that things were changing, but also typically hedged um, in the language mm-hmm. she used. And, and, and so, yes, Germany did, you know, Germany sent troops to Afghanistan. It, I mean, for me, I think one of the most striking shifts was, uh, and I was fortunate enough to go and visit it, but Germany has a leads the enhanced forward presence mission of NATO in um, Lithuania, which was um, instituted after Russia's initial attack on Ukraine in 2014, along with equivalent missions in the other Baltic states and Poland. And that was a big step forward. That was Germany leading an international contingent in a uh, an Eastern European state, overcoming many of the, the, the burdens of history to do so. So the idea that Germany has just stood still since the end of the Cold War doesn't stand, stand up to the facts. But on the point about authority, Germany's a bit of a super tanker and it tends to, it tends to turn and move quite slowly. Um, mm, that's mm. partly a function of the structure of the state. I mean, you know, British prime ministers can pull levers in a way that a German chancellor can't, let, me, let alone talking about the powers um, in the office of a French president. But Germany, it's a decentralised country. Governments are almost invariably coalitions. 
opinions and interest groups need to be aligned. And so it does it does move slowly and gradually. And I think kind of political culture moves slightly more slowly than in other countries, which one can certainly see as an advantage. I mean, there's, there's a lot yeah. said for a deliberative, cautious and consensus-oriented political culture. And I think but it's not the most responsive... No, um, the most responsive model to sort of urgent circumstances. Absolutely, is and I think almost invariably, one a country's strengths are almost always the opposite side of the coin to its weaknesses. So it's always rather hard to disentangle one from the other. And I think in Germany, it brings pros and cons, just as the more dynamic and antagonistic British system brings its pros and cons. Um, this brings me to Schultz, and I, I think I, I think it's perhaps a bit too generous to him to say, well, he didn't have, he doesn't have enough authority yet, or he hasn't built up the stature of a Merkel. Uh, to provide that leadership. I mean, he leads a coalition uh, of three parties, uh, and of those, his own, the Social Democrats, have been the most reluctant or the most cautious to up Germany's support to Ukraine. The other two, the junior coalition partners, the Greens and the and the Free Democrats, have been outflanking him on this um, to the point where it looked at the start of last week like his foreign minister was starting to sort of make foreign policy and as, as you know it, as she gave her yeah, media, yeah. media comments she was talking about giving poland the right to export its leopard twos uh, before anything had come out of the chancellery she's i should say annalena baerbock the foreign minister is, is a green so i don't think he can he can say well the, the reason is that i haven't got the, the backing for my government and the other question of course on this is public opinion it's true that it was fairly finely balanced before this opinion was announced it's worth noting that since this has been announced the the balance of opinion has shifted clearly in favour, which I think speaks to the fact that Germans are willing to listen to the case. And when someone like Scholz says this is the right decision, they take that on board. And I think that it comes back again to this culture of leadership. I absolutely get why some, particularly kind of reading in the British press, that you know, a British press that has spent much of the last decade or so bashing Germany for one reason or another, are sceptical about the arguments against the length of time it took Schultz to reach a decision on this. But I do think set against that, there is a, a really strong pro-European argument for Germany to step up on this sort of thing. You know, it, it, Europe cannot rely eternally on the US. You know, God knows who the next US president is going to be. We've been fortunate with Biden that he's an, an instinctive Atlanticist. But in many ways, he's a product of a previous generation. I mean, he's at the start of his 80s. And he, I think, was socialized and politicized at a time when the Atlantic Alliance was the be-all and end-all of American security policy. That will mm. not be the case in the future, certainly not under the Republicans, as, as, given the direction they're going, let alone under the Democrats. So I think there is a case for Europe to take its fate more into its own hands. And Germany, as the continent's biggest economy, the country right at the heart of Europe, with obvious historical responsibilities, um, has a particular role in that. I read something recently by Liana Fix, mm. uh, who's from the Council on Foreign Relations, and she suggested that the real issue is, to quote her, that everyone still looks to Washington for leadership. Exactly. So is the real problem that Europe desperately actually needs formalized structures on foreign and defense matters? Are we now overdue for that difficult conversation? I absolutely agree. And um, Liana's writing on this has always been must read. Um, I think that 
I mean, obviously, this is a particularly complicated conversation with regards to the UK. But just to park that for a moment, to be not on the EU, it's been clear for a long time that the, the EU needs to develop a stronger geopolitical edge. And it's it's sort of recognised almost to the point of cliche in Brussels, that that's the case. And I think that the obvious next steps would be, um, for example, to apply qualified majority decision making on foreign policy, which sounds technocratic, but what it amounts to is the end of a sort of lowest common denominator EU foreign and defence policy where any country... Mm often these days Hungary under Viktor Orban, can block um, or veto progress. Um, there's also the case for Europe to develop its own you know, closer cooperative defence mechanisms. So there is the European Rapid Reaction Force is a sort of embryonic form of that, which could eventually evolve into some sort of European army. And I know that when a lot of Brits hear European army sort of um, hackles immediately go up, But that may well be necessary. And actually, public opinion in a lot of the EU has been shifting towards that. And some sort of cross-border EU force capable of providing security on the continent, particularly in a a future where the US is much more focused on the Pacific, I think is pragmatic. And actually, it's none of the frigging business anymore other than as an interested outsider well it, it to is, be honest. because britain is, a, is still a major military player and it is um i do think that as part of attempts to mitigate the, the damage of brexit um britain needs to be bound into a lot of these secure i mean britain obviously would not participate in, the, in an eu army but in other areas i mean it's European Defence Fund, for example. Another topic I was about to mention, which absolutely does involve Britain, is is aligning procurement. I mean, there are a remarkable number of different models of, for example, helicopter that different European militaries use, which simply makes it difficult for for them to work in unison or work together if if, if there's some some sort of common mission. So aligning procurement, um, a stronger European defence industrial base, um, so the culture of working together. And, and, you know, there there have been steps towards this. I mentioned earlier the the NATO enhanced forward presence where you have parts of Eastern Europe, and that's that's being rolled out more widely, by the way, given um, the events of the past 12 months. But that's an example of, of different European armies working together in common initiatives. So mm. absolutely, that is of the essence. And I do think that there is a role for Britain in that, even if it, you know, there are, there are parts of that that would be beyond the pale for many in the UK. But I, I, the reality remains the UK is a major security and military player. We've seen that with the support it's provided Ukraine. That support would have been even more valuable had it been as part of the EU's response. But the UK does still matter. And I think, you know, particularly looking ahead to not long now to the next British election, big questions about what a change of government in London would mean. And I do think that's an area where, for example, a, you know, a Keir Starmer government could could very constructively... And that is, in fact, what David Lammy hinted at heavily, that security would be one of the areas where a Labour government would look for closer cooperation. Mm. Um, Jeremy, we've we've talked a lot about the stories we tell ourselves about Germany versus the reality. Is another part of that the fact that we see Germany as the always stable, uber-efficient adult in the room? Your colleague, Ido Vonk, uh, recently wrote... The reality is that this is a land of staggering incompetence and bureaucratic inertia. I I think that rather overstates the point. But is there something to it? Is part of the frustration a sort of longing for a Germany that exists partly in international fantasy? There is some truth to that. I I wouldn't have have worded it like that myself. The piece you mentioned was a typically spirited and provocative take from Ido. Um, I... I do think there is some, there is some truth to the idea that you know I I wonder how much of this internationally comes from a sort of 
being daunted by Germany, particularly in, in the UK, it sort of it seems it seems so economically almighty, and and there's this, the cliches about German efficiency, and I think you know there are still people have complicated emotions about it, even multiple generations on from the Second World War, and I think the truth is that German efficiency is a bit of a myth in many respects. I think in, in what what is truer is that Germans are very methodical. Um, and process-oriented, and that mm. can sometimes um, be beneficial. And so I, that's how I see Germany, is not as some terrifying, um, daunting giant or hegemon, nor as a basket case, but as a, as a country that has its strengths and weaknesses like, like, like any others. Some point to the fact that the moment Ukraine got the decision it wanted on Leopard 2s, it instantly has shifted its focus to fighter jets. And they say that Schultz was actually right to be cautious if the West does not want to escalate the conflict. So to wrap things up, is there a danger that the West is being swept up in sentiment rather than proceeding with careful calculation? Schultz actually gave an interview over the weekend with the German paper Tagesspiegel in which he said that we've got to get over the idea that how we support Ukraine is like some sort of mathematical um formula that we just need to work out scientifically the right answer and that the experts can give us that, that answer um, and there are judgments calls to be made and I think that he's obviously been irritated by the um, the broad sort of um, international and expert consensus that pressured him somewhat into making the decision on tanks um, he obviously has a point and you, one, one can't be exact about these things um, relatedly I don't think you can entirely discount emotions from decision making because I think people are people are emotionally moved in their support for mm-hmm. Ukraine and in the approach they're taking and you see the horrific um, war crimes being committed against civilians in Russian occupied parts of Ukraine it's very hard to discount one or leave one's emotions at the door when talking about this but said against that I almost detected a whiff of the the Michael Gove we've had enough of experts uh, line <laughs> in this in in, in yes. this point it's true that, that one cannot be 100 percent sure but one can um one can trust the Ukrainians to have understood what it will take to defend their country, to retake their territory. And I think that the fact that, you know, bear in mind that a lot of Western governments, actually from Germany and France to the UK and the US, pretty much thought that Ukraine would be wiped out within a couple of days of the Russian attack in on the 24th of February. The Ukrainians have shown that they know what it takes to resist and to take back territory. They've, 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 they had remarkable successes around Kharkiv and Kherson mm. late last year. And so we can only go by the observation that the Ukrainians know what they need. And once they have the right material, can make military advances. And with every military advance there, their position strengthens vis-a-vis Russia and, and and the chances that they can deliver some sort of outcome that that, that upholds the, the precedent of national sovereignty, of democracy, of respect for the international rule of law. And I think that's something else to keep in mind is what, what precedents are being created here that will be applied elsewhere in the world over the next decades. So it's true. We, we shouldn't be too emotional about it. But I think from the most sober and rational, conceivable mindset, the the military case, the strategic case, the foreign policy case for providing Ukraine with the support it says it needs it needs is overwhelming. Jeremy Cliff, thank you so much for your time. You helped me clear up a, a lot of swirling things in my head. I'm sure listeners will be equally grateful. Thanks. A pleasure, and thank you for the very good and thoughtful questions. 
Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for the measly price of a coffee. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Most people agree on where we need to end up, Putin's defeat. But we don't all start from the same place, and that is sometimes not respected enough. The last major European war has come to mean victory, liberation and glory to Western allies. To Germany it meant defeat, humiliation and shame. Plenty of analysis points a finger at Germany for taking too much time over these momentous decisions. But the same sequence of events that looks like indecision from one vantage point may look like prudence from another. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The bunker was presented by Alexandreou. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, audio productions by me, Robin Lieburn, and the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The bunker is a Podmasters production.